Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've always been fascinated by the human voice, which experts say is as unique to each person as their fingerprint. In these podcasts, we celebrate the human voice in all its wonderfully diverse forms, young and old, different accents and cultural contexts. Writers sometimes struggle to find their own voice, but you can kind of tell when someone is speaking from a place of authenticity and integrity. That's when I most love listening to voices. Thank you for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. The great thing about this is that they're interwoven. What's good for the environment is also seems to be the healthy choice as well. A new way for individuals to help combat global warming, cut back on eating meat. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. The problem of global warming associated with broiling summers, violent storms, and rising oceans will not be alleviated by quick-fix solutions. But individuals can have a large impact by taking one relatively simple step, reduce their consumption of meat products by eating more fruits and vegetables. The reason is that huge amounts of the greenhouse gases that cause global warming are emitted in the raising of cattle and other animals. The chair of the prestigious UN panel on climate change says that cutting back on meat is the easiest way to take immediate action on global warming. And if we don't act promptly on climate change, says former Vice President Al Gore, future generations will wonder why. And they will ask one of two questions. Either they will ask, what in God's name were they doing? Didn't they see the evidence? Didn't they hear the warnings? Didn't they see the mountain glaciers melting in every part of this earth? Didn't they see the, the North Polar ice cap melting? Didn't they hear the scientists say it may be gone in as little as 34 years? Didn't they hear the seismographers telling them that the earth is shaking because of the glacial earthquakes on Greenland? Up to 5.1 on the Richter scale. Didn't they see the evidence of uh, nature being on the run? The gradual increase in temperature of the Earth's atmosphere and oceans, known as global warming, is a complex phenomenon. Emissions from automotive vehicles are one leading cause, but a fifth of greenhouse gases are attributable to meat production, according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. At the University of Chicago, climate scientist Pamela Martin has studied why. I grew up in a small town not very far from Chicago, about 100 kilometers uh, west of here. And it was surrounded by cornfields and soy fields. It wasn't until my freshman year of high school that I realized that people aren't even eating the soy and the corn that was growing around me. My own family didn't farm. We came from, they came from the city. They were relocated there. 
um, my friends were farmers, and I remember asking about, well, are we having the corn from over there? <laughs> that? No, 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 that's for, that's, that's for cattle. So there was food all around me, yet it was food that we weren't eating. And it, it even took a long time to sink in when I lived in that environment. It turns out that most of these crops are grown not to be eaten by humans, but by animals that are slaughtered for meat. And cultivating the crops for animal feed involves tremendous energy use, from pumping water to producing pesticides and fertilizer. These and other factors in raising livestock cause substantial emission of greenhouse gases. A herd of cattle at Appleton Farms in Ipswich, Massachusetts on a gray, drizzly day. Amid rolling grasslands, it's one of the oldest continuously operating farms in the United States. White Park and Jersey cows are raised here for milk production and for beef. It's a nonprofit facility that prides itself on progressive programs like community supported agriculture. But throughout America, most livestock is raised for profit on factory like farms. Cows live in confined quarters and are fed grain rather than their natural food of grass. They gain more weight that way, but it can also make them sick, hence the widespread use of antibiotics in raising of farm animals, chemicals contained in the meat people eat. Pamela Martin has focused on the global warming link to meat production. A colleague and I had been talking about these issues for quite a long time. Um, together, mostly over lunch, <laughs> and he was getting ready for a conference and made the very statement that the choices you make and what you eat are as significant as the car you drive. And my response was, do you know that? <laughs> and so we set out to calculate it. And what have you discovered? We found that the amount of meat in the diet can easily be equated to the type of car one drives or how many miles one drives. Eliminating meat from the diet is the difference between driving a Prius or driving the standard American Camry, for example. So, you know, you can buy a Prius and have the same savings you would have um, if you would just eliminate meat from your diet. Climate experts increasingly consider the link between global warming and what we eat. A number of environmentalists have adopted a vegan diet containing no animal products of any kind and deriving their protein from plant sources. Others follow a looser vegetarian diet that cuts out meat but includes dairy or eggs. Some have become semi-vegetarian. Uh, what one chooses to eat, especially the a choice as as pertains to uh, plant versus animal sources of food, uh, th uh, that decision is is uh, on average at least as important as what car you drive or how much of it you do. Guidon Eschel, an Israeli-born climate scientist now at Bard College, has run some of the numbers. He's calculated the quantity of greenhouse gases generated by different American lifestyles. Switching from a Hummer to um, a Prius will move you from about five tons per 
per person per year to about one and a half, and switching from the mean American diet to a vegan diet will reduce your uh, footprint from from about four to about two and a half. That's the difference. They're very, very similar. The typical American eats about 200 pounds of meat, poultry, and fish each year. Compared with growing fruits, vegetables, and grains for human consumption, raising livestock consumes far greater resources. If everybody went vegan, uh, we will need about a third of the land uh, that is currently used. Uh, by the way, 41% of the surface area of the country, including Hawaii and Alaska, is devoted to um, is devoted to agriculture. So this country has fundamentally allocated um, land resources for uh, for producing food. And the question is, do you produce food in an inefficient way? that uh, exerts very significant demands on all kinds of geophysical systems, uh, land being one of them, water being another, nitrogen production being a third, and so on, or do you do it in a very efficient way? The Central Valley in California, where most of the, of the, or the lion's share of food that people actually directly eat is produced in this country, consumes a trivial amount of the total fertilizer consumed in this country. The bulk of it goes to uh, row crops, mostly corn, soy, wheat, and not to to food that people eat, like spinach or strawberry or, or almonds. You know, those, yeah, they consume a little bit, but it's it's a very small amount. Manufacturing of chemical fertilizers is highly energy-intensive, emitting significant amounts of carbon dioxide, or CO2, the leading greenhouse gas. Pamela Martin at the University of Chicago. So if we add up all the greenhouse gases from diet, uh, about half of it comes from the CO2 due to the energy use. Um, whether that's directly from the tractors on the farms or indirectly from the uh, pesticides and fertilizers that are produced. And then on top of that, there's a couple other greenhouse gases that are involved in agriculture. So there's methane, which has the potency of about 20 times that of CO2 in global warming potential that it has. And a second one is nitrous oxide, which is about 200 times as potent. Methane um, has some non-animal sources in agriculture. Rice paddies give off methane. Um, but a bigger source of these methane and nitrous oxides are from the animals, and mostly in the management of their manure. There's these large cattle feedlots where you have a lot of cattle eating and a lot of cattle producing manure on very large scale. And all of this manure gets concentrated, whether it's in some solid waste pond or if it's in a sludge pond, so that you now have this big concentrated area of manure that you have to deal with. And it decomposes in this situation anaerobically without oxygen. Um, so you, and, you know, the stuff decomposes underneath, and that's when you produce these greenhouse gases. There's also direct emissions of methane from cows burping um, and all of this adds up, actually. So if we all switched from eating meat to, ha to non-animal sources, then 
the greenhouse gas load would go down because we're actually farming less land. We don't need to farm as much land, so there's not as much nitrous oxides released from that land for that. There's not as much CO2 that goes into farming that land. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Healthy Planet, Healthy Body, check our website, humanmedia.org. People shift for various reasons from a meat-based diet to one that relies mostly or entirely on vegetables, fruits, and grains. Some people do so because it's healthy for themselves and the environment. Others object to the factory farm treatment and slaughter of animals or respond to spiritual motivations. Thousands of vegetarians and veggie wannabes recently came together. Welcome to the 13th annual Boston Vegetarian Food Festival. We have events throughout the year, speakers, cooking classes. You don't have to go out all out vegetarian, but even if you reduce um, some amount of meat intake, I think you're living a healthier lifestyle and um, having a healthier effect on the environment and also reducing the amount of suffering in the world, I think. More and more of these foods are packaged up, so they're kind of like quick... Um, we can cook it quickly. So um, people who are on the go, like me, where I have a full-time job, I teach two courses in addition to that, sometimes three. I have a busy lifestyle and travel a lot. It is something that you can bring with you and something that's easy to importable. I'm actually wearing a shirt right now that says, Real Environmentalists Don't Eat Meat. Uh, and I think that's very true. Um, a UN report came out a couple years ago called The Livestock's Long Shadow. Uh, that set basically concluded that the livestock industry is adding more to global warming than the transportation industry. And I think that's something that people need to remember, um, especially when it comes to policy and stuff uh, like the farm bill when, where we're subsidizing uh, corn and soy, which is being fed to animals to make cheap meat for people. And the, the inefficiencies in meat are something to remember when we have a world hunger crisis. Uh, the inefficiency with land use, inefficiency of water use, electricity, energy use, uh, it's, it's just so inefficient. And we, and we live in a time where we need to be more efficient with what we do and what we, what we consume. So I think it's really important to remember that. What was your motivation to become a vegetarian? It was a lot of things coming together. Uh, it was kind of like, but the straw that broke the camel's back actually was the tsunami that hit in Southeast Asia. Uh, I heard, had read that week that animals were running to higher ground. The elephants were breaking their chains and running to higher ground. And actually a lot of, barely any animals died in the tsunami, but a lot of people and houses obviously got destroyed. And it got me thinking, animals know something that we don't, and maybe I shouldn't be eating them. And that was just one of many things. I mean, the environmental reasons, the ethical reasons, um, but also my doubt of whether we really understand what animals are thinking and what they really are uh, made me realize I shouldn't be eating them because maybe they serve a, a higher purpose than that I'm messing with. But then, since then, obviously I've seen 
you know, the factory farm stuff and, and, and all those horrible images, and it has made me realize. And then all the hormones and things like that that are in meat and dairy, it's made me realize that I made the right decision. The thing is, you don't want to do it all at once. You know, give up the fast food first. You know, eat more vegetables, eat more fruits, and uh, a little less meat. I mean, say give up once a month, give up a cut of meat that you like, and, you know, take it from there. But when you look at the diabetes in this country and the heart problems, I mean, you'd be foolish not to do it. We've been sold a bill of goods here. Well, I had gastro bypass, lost a lot of weight, and changed the way I started eating. And what kind of eating do you do now? Well, I'm still learning how to be a vegetarian, but I, I'm, I eat, uh, I'm vegetarian. I'm not a vegan, but uh, I don't eat any uh, meat. I eat fish, but no chicken, no turkey. And I'm learning all the different dishes that they have. That's why I came, really, to learn. When you made the transition, I realized you did so for health reasons. Was it hard? It gets easier. The longer you do it, the easier it gets. At the same time that leading-edge climate scientists have studied the environmental advantages of a plant-based diet, nutrition and medical scientists have increasingly confirmed the benefits to human health of emphasizing fruits, vegetables, and grains in our diet. Susan Forster in Sacramento specializes in nutrition to prevent diseases at the California Department of Public Health. Really, the evidence hasn't changed very much during my career, which is about 30 years of time. We're still recommending that Americans eat more plant foods than they are eating. We are seeing that fresh foods seem to be emerging um, as compared with processed foods, that fresh foods seem to be emerging as more healthful, and that probably isn't very surprising. And we're seeing that physical activity is very much a part of the nutrition equation. So in many ways, these are the same recommendations that have been made for 40 or 50 years, but we're now gaining a much more scientific um, understanding about the reasons that these recommendations are so influential to health. What's happening is, to me, that the evidence is growing stronger for the type of diet that we've been discussing, that is, one where most of the foods are plant foods or fresh foods, and less of the foods are processed with um, using fats, flour, and um, sugar ingredients. And that is very kind of elementary information from the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s. Cauliflower and cabbage are good, too. Yes, there are hundreds of wonderful vegetables. The important thing is that all kinds of vegetables are good for you. They're important for good health, for lots of energy and pep, for clear skin and bright eyes, for shining, gleaming hair, and above all, for that wonderful sense of feeling good. An instructional film shown to schoolchildren in the 1950s. Today, nutrition science has identified many phytochemicals naturally occurring in fruits and vegetables that help to reduce a person's risk of serious disease, including cancer. And another point, 
The more fruits and vegetables one consumes, the less room there is for animal products with potentially harmful effects of high fat and cholesterol. Susan Forster at the California Department of Public Health. The exciting things that I've seen in recent years have been confirmation in large trials that higher amounts of fruits and vegetables have health benefits. The strongest evidence is emerging in the area of heart disease and stroke. And the DASH trial that was done a number of years ago was quite remarkable in showing that generous servings of fruits and vegetables along with the low-fat dairy products and um, a lower overall fat intake made very large differences in stroke and heart attack rates. And so that evidence, since heart disease and stroke are the first and third causes of premature death in the United States, that is really remarkable scientific evidence that can guide us in the daily choices we make. In the cancer area, the consensus with regard to cancer sites, meaning the um, organ in which the cancer is found, remains strong for lung cancer, oral cancers, esophageal, stomach, and colon. So basically, the cancers that are associated with um, with epithelial tissue, and there's also evidence that suggests um, some types of skin cancer might benefit from a higher fruit and vegetable intake. Our international studies show that when people are eating seven, eight, nine servings of fruits and vegetables a day, that's when you see the improvement in a whole bunch of chronic diseases. But we've seen in epidemiologic studies that there's a a continuum. So the more fruits and vegetables that population segments do consume, the lower the rates of many types of cancer. So to me, the five-a-day goal is really a minimum. And we know from our population studies that women are eating maybe four servings a day. They're not quite at the five level. And that's probably not enough to be protective later in life particularly when latent cancer becomes, um, be- becomes diagnosed. Again, the scientific finding for general nutrition and disease prevention is for people to adopt a plant-based diet, emphasizing a variety of fruits, vegetables, and grains, and for protein to consume bean dishes or limited intake of animal products. In practical terms, this translates into a semi-vegetarian or completely vegetarian diet. So I think that from a public health perspective, the take-home message is that we need to, as a nation, eat more fruits and vegetables starting in childhood and continue that practice um, through adulthood. And that laid the groundwork for the recommendations that now are um, national nutrition policy, and that is um, intakes of fruits and vegetables for most women at seven servings and for active women at, say, nine servings, and for men at nine servings up to, say, 13 servings for adolescent males. And so the precision of the dietary recommendations has gotten um, greater because of 
the trials that are being looked at for different diseases and also because of the benefits of, of fruits and vegetables to weight management. So these minimum recommended levels, seven servings for women, nine for men, is this something that has met with the agreement of everybody? The dietary guidelines for Americans represent consensus between the um, Department of Health and Human Services, which includes the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Centers for Disease Control, and the Food and Drug Administration, along with the United States Department of Agriculture. So pretty much the entire American public health establishment. Yeah, that's exactly right. And what they do is try to look across all of the diseases as well as looking at wellness um, and, and nutritional status and so forth to come up with these recommendations. The striking fact is that both nutrition science and climate science make the identical recommendation. Animal products should be cut down or eliminated from the human diet for the sake of personal health and the health of our planet. The two findings overlap. And says Dr. Rajendra Pachari, chairman of the Nobel Peace Prize winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, by combating global warming, human health is protected. I think there's a range of health benefits that would accrue from stabilizing the world's climate. Firstly, heat waves. We know as temperatures increase, as climate change progresses, heat waves will become more frequent, more intense, and these obviously are a great health hazard. They can affect morbidity and mortality of large populations, as we've seen, for instance, in the case of the heat wave that took place in Europe in 2003. We know that vector-borne diseases, including diseases like malaria, would be on the increase. Recently, there's been an increase in diseases in countries like Italy, where temperatures have been going up. And a lot of the pests, a lot of the vector-borne diseases uh, would become more prevalent with higher temperatures and changes that are taking place. Uh, the increase in floods and droughts have major implications for health. Every time there's a flood anywhere in the world, uh, the biggest challenge for policymakers uh, and health officials is to see that you minimize and control the outbreak of disease as a result of flooding. There's a, a, a whole range of these benefits, health benefits that would arise if we were able to stabilize the concentration of greenhouse gases and temperatures. Dr. Pachari says that for people concerned about the problem of global warming, becoming a vegetarian is the easiest way to have an impact in a short period of time. He suggests that people have one meat-free day a week and to increase meatless eating from there. University of Chicago climate scientist Pamela Martin. What's good for the environment is also seems to be the healthy choice as well. What do you recommend for people who are interested in changing what they eat to reduce global warming? To cut back on first red meat consumption and then to try to cut back on meat consumption in general. I wouldn't suggest trying to go cold turkey the next day. So to speak. Yes, so to speak. But just cutting back, cutting back can make a big difference. And, you know, if you eat meat every day now, why not eat meat three days instead? It can make a huge difference. 
you've made a decision to take what you've learned about the environmental impact of dietary choices and change what it is that you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm -hmm. You just feel like you're personally contributing to this worldwide environmental mess? Yes, and when there are other choices that are available, healthier choices in many cases, or at least as healthy, and simply as, as tasty choices available too. Pamela Martin of the University of Chicago. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck, Daniel Grossman, and the Prelinger Archive. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, Healthy Planet, Healthy People, is Humankind program number 134. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.